You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Amy Belding Brown, author of the novel Emily's House. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Great. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, Emily's House, how would you describe the novel? Well, um, it's a work of biographical fiction uh, based on real real life people. Um, and it's based on uh, the sense of the center of it is the relationship between Emily Dickinson and uh, her um, longtime live-in maid, Margaret Marr, who was an Irish immigrant. She was a really remarkable person. She actually worked for the Dickinson family for 30 years. And um, during the last, she was there during the last 17 years of Emily's life. And she played a really pivotal role um, in sharing Emily's poetry of the world that a lot of people don't know about. It's kind of, it's buried in the history. Uh, more prominent um, people in the Amherst and stuff get a lot of credit for things that, you know, sort of, if you dig down, she was really at the bottom of some of that. And how did you originally hear about the maid and her her impact on getting Emily's work out to the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was reading, I didn't know, I wanted to write something with Emily Dickinson in it. I knew I couldn't, I didn't really feel competent to write from her point of view. Um, she's just too, <laughs> a little beyond my uh, um, bandwidth in terms of brain uh, wordplay and the way she uses words and the way she thought. But um but so I was reading things uh, of all as much as I could get about Emily with the with the intention of writing something from some other person's point of view in her circle, possibly her one of her relatives. And um, because I was reading everything, and I came on this book, uh, Made as Muse by Eva Murray, and I read that, and it just grabbed me um, because it explores the uh, the book really explores, uh, from a non-fictional point of view, the Dickinson servants and over the years and their impact on the poet and the other people in the Dickinson family. 
um, and sort of starring in that in that book was Margaret Marr. She really stood out, was really important. And when I read the book, um, I discovered that there was it wasn't too much emphasized in the book, but it was there. And so then I went exploring that sh- that Emily had um, actually asked Margaret to burn her poems when she died. And Margaret had, obviously she didn't do that, but she'd been ordered to by her mistress. And I thought that was really interesting. It's sort of a negative um, way of looking at it. But if she had done what her mistress said, we wouldn't have the bulk of those poems. And and what kind of research did you do? I mean, you mentioned this uh, this one nonfiction work. Once you discovered that, did you uh, try to find um, other mentions and other discussions of the maid? Absolutely, I went in. I went deep into that. I followed up every thread I could find online and in books. Um, there are references. One of the um, key things, and I believe it's in in Efa's uh, in her bibliography. It mentions a lot of the work she used, and uh, I'm pretty sure this is... But anyways, em- Emily's, um, her niece, uh, Martha Dickinson, um, wrote a book about her late, later after, way after Emily died, but she wrote some books about her, and in one of them is this, called Emily Dickinson Face to Face, is the book, and in it she um, described this scene where she and her mother who was Emily Dickinson's close friend, came on uh, Margaret, who the family called Maggie, um, and she was crying in the kitchen of the homestead where Emily lived. This was after Emily's death, but not a long time after her death. And they wanted to know why she was crying, and she said she, she, had, she explained it. She was really upset because she was told to burn these poems, and she didn't do it, so she felt guilty. And she so the uh, um, uh, Margaret, I'm sorry, Maddie's, uh, Martha's mother um, assured Margaret that, that that Emily was just too shy about it and not to worry about it, um, and it would be terrible if they'd been burned. So that's, but that's a sort of eyewitness account, which really interests me. But there are a lot of other things I read deep into the literature. I like to do research. So there's lots and lots of different books and different papers, scholarly papers that I consulted. And then I also went into Margaret's life to the extent that I could find out and trace, like, uh, find out where she grew up and and how, what it was like there. She grew up during the potato famine, what it was like when she left Ireland, um, and what it, and a lot of stuff. So I did deep, sort of deep research into the Irish experience of those people who emigrated after the potato famine. So that's among other things. <laughs> I consulted. And, and, and what was the experience of Irish immigrants in New England in the late 1800s who fled the, the famine? Yeah, it was, it was really terrible. Um, the immigrants, they were reviled. They were, a lot of times they were kept from employment. There were signs around. Uh, people or their advertisements for um, housekeepers and things like that, and they would say, "No Irish need apply." This was not just for women; it was also in factories. Um, men had a lot of trouble getting work, so they ended up doing what was sort of at the bottom. Uh, the men tended to work on the railroad and and do 
real hard labor like that. Um, but a lot of women came over just for the purpose of being domestic servants. And she, I don't think that that's not why Margaret came. She came with her oldest sister, who's quite a bit older than she is, and her two younger brothers. But she, in the process, she got a job as a domestic servant. And I think um, it was really terrible, especially in the cities, Boston and New York. Um, really, people were really mistreated, and there was terrible prejudice against them. Um, they were compared to apes. There were terrible cartoons about them. And, and there was, at the time, that the year, in fact, that Margaret um, immigrated, there was uh, the, no, the Know Nothing Party, which was a nativist party. Um, which was anti-Irish, anti-Catholic, was uh, dominating the Massachusetts. That did change over the years, and especially as the huge populations of Irish started to gain some political strength. But at the beginning, it was um, really bad. Now, uh, that said, Margaret uh, kind of lucked out, and it wasn't quite that bad in like the Northampton, Amherst area, as it as it was in some of the cities, so she she actually had a lot easier time than many people did, than many Irish people did at that time. What was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Oh, uh, well, uh, that's a long story because it goes <laughs> way back. I wanted, to, I really wanted to be a writer ever since I was about nine years old. I can remember deciding this is what I want to do, um, and at that. At that point, you know, I'm as a kid, so I wrote little things. So I did a lot of writing. Um, and I think like many, many writers, you decide, you, you come to it really from a love of books, a love of reading. You love to read, and it, eventually sometimes you say, well, I really want to do that. I want to have that impact on, on other people that these books have had on me. So that's where I think it starts. But as, as while I did write and write and write a lot, um, I didn't really think of myself as a novelist. I did poetry um, and had a little bit of poetry. I had, I grew up in Vermont. I had a little bit of success, um, very minor success for like a high school student um, in winning some contests and getting a little bit of poetry published. And then I went off to college <laughs> and I, and I uh, fell in love with and married a man who became a minister. Uh, I don't think being a pastor's wife is really meshes awfully well with with a writing <laughs> career but i'm also i also really and i really enjoyed this part of my life um i raised four children and i loved it um so there was a lot of, it was a slow slow process for me but my first actual book um came out of i was taking a writing workshop we were living in maine at that time I was taking a writing workshop in portland and the uh, person who was running the workshop, who was a published writer, took me aside at the end of the was like six week workshop, and said, "I think my agent would be interested in your work." At that point, I only had short stories, and uh, mostly. And so, um, they took me. The agent, Don Congdon, took me on on the basis of my stories. I'm not sure that happens anymore, unless you're. Very, um, you know, come out of Iowa Writers Workshop or something like that. Sure. But, it, but again, this is this my my particular story. Uh, it's not a roadmap for success <laughs> uh, these days. Um, but 
and, and so anyways, from that, after a while, and, and I remember um, the call eventually got, I don't think he was actually able to place those stories. Um, some others got placed later, but um, he did call me up and, and ask me if I had a novel. And at that point, I said I didn't have a novel, but I, I was actually working on a romance novel. And it wasn't what I, I didn't intend to, I mean, it wasn't like my dream to write romance novels. Um, but I had the, I think, sort of foolish at that point, thought that they, they wouldn't be too hard. You just have two people and they fall in love and what's the problem? So anyways, but I mean, had fun with it. And I said it in Maine and um, on the coast of Maine, which was fun, which I love. And um and he took he took it and what he did was he ended up selling it to um good housekeeping, which at that time um sometimes condensed novels. And they took that and they published that. And from there um it got picked up by St. Martin's Press. And after that I wrote another one, which is also published. These are just little paperbacks published sure. um by St. Martin's Press. And I wrote some more. But they never sold. <laughs> so I had an agent. He, Donna had passed me down to Susan Raymer, who was in his agency then. So I've been with her ever since. She's wonderful. Um, but in, in any case, um, after that, I just kind of reached the point, well, if I can't, if I'm no longer on this successful publishing thing, I'll just write what I want. And I've always been interested in history. and. Um, and I got someone mentioned um, on an email thing. And someone mentioned Lydia Emerson, which who's I'd never heard of, but she was Ralph Waldo Emerson's second wife. And I so I started looking at her. I started researching about her, and I thought her story was really interesting. She was a brilliant, uh, very talented woman, woman intellectual, very similar to her husband. But her story had just gotten buried um, in in the midst of time, if you will, or whatever. She just didn't get any credit. So I got really interested in her. I wrote a novel. That was my first historical novel um, called Mr. Emerson's Wife. And then after that, I wrote, um, not right away. I'm very slow at this because <laughs> I do a lot of research. Uh, but I wrote Flight of the Sparrow, um, which the reason I got into that was interested in that, which is set in um, – uh, 1676 um, during King Philip's War, which is an unknown, well, it's not unknown, but a, pa- a war that gets a period of colonial uh, Massachusetts life that gets passed over. Um, but I was interested in Puritans because Emerson, I, when I found out that Emerson and his cr- crowd were sort of rebelling against their Puritan ancestors, I wanted to know more about the Puritans. So I got deep into that. And that did pretty well. And then I was looking for something else. And Emily Dickinson's always been sort of in the background of my my thinking, my world. Um, I grew up um, with an aunt who loved her poetry. And my grandmother lived in Northampton, which is close by. So Amherst was uh, somewhat of a known quantity to me, although I didn't, uh, as uh, her, Emily Dickinson was always a shadowy, mysterious person. So I think it was partly just to kind of figure her out that I I started um, Emily's house, and I will say that uh, in a in a very real way, I don't think I ever figured her out quite. But 
but it was an interesting exploration. So I'm curious about your writing process, given that it was a historical novel. And as you mentioned, you did all of this research. Did you outline the novel extensively before you began writing? No, I, I wish I, I, I've, it's been recommended to me. I know a lot of people have great <laughs> success with this. Um, but I, and, and my agent has said, why don't you outline it first? And it's like, I've tried, I have tried and it doesn't work for me. I can outline it about halfway through the process. Um, at once I've, but I, I have to, again, I'm slow. Um, I have to get the characters first. That's the most important thing. How I do that is I do a lot of research. Then I, um, enough research till I get a sense of the character. Then I start my main character. Then I start writing scenes. Um, I put her in scenes and kind of see how she acts. So there's a certain element for me of discovering who the character is by putting them in situations that were probably real or something like it. But we have lots of information about Emily might have done this or Margaret might have done that, but we don't know the details. We don't know what they said to each other, really. You know, it's those kinds of things. So that's a lot of invention there. So I got, um, I got doing that. And that's once I've done that, then I, it kind of builds on itself. It somewhat takes on a life of its own, but I'm always get sort of stopped, not stopped, but I get to a point where I need to do more research because that process of creating characters on the page raises new questions for me. So then I have to go and research some more, which again, this part I love. So it's not, <laughs> it's not an issue for me. Um, have you started working on another novel yet? I've, I've just begun. I'm in the very early stages of doing, um, of writing a novel um, that's set in Vermont during the Revolutionary War. So it's a whole, I like to have new, um, new eras each time so that's that's where that's at um and i'm ve it's very early uh so i'm still in the explore exploratory stage and uh, and doing mostly research with a little bit of trying to write like possible character into some <laughs> situations Great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I you know, I think it's always like every, everybody has to find their own way of doing it. But my advice is always to read, read a lot, read and read some more, and then write and write a lot. It sounds, uh, it's not flip. It just really takes a lot of reading and a lot of writing to do it well. And the big thing is to be persistent. If you want to publish, um, you just have to stick with it. And there's tons of um, rejection that comes with this package. So you should never do it if you don't love it. If there's not some part of you that would do it anyway, even if there was no prospect of publication, then you probably shouldn't bother. <laughs> but that's that's my advice. <laughs> and and what keeps you going through those rejections? Is it just the love of the writing and story? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's always discouraging to get sure. a rejection. And I'll have a few days where I'm like, ugh. But I've never gotten to the point where I want to give it up um, because I just, for me, there's some sort of um, reward just in doing it. It's almost like a, a thing I have to do. It's like a little like, like eating, you know, <laughs> every day you have to eat a little bit at least. Um, and it's so that I just feel, I feel 
when I'm not writing, when I'm not having it, when I go for a few days or a few, certainly more than a, a week without writing anything, be it poetry, it doesn't have to be a novel, but um, then I start to feel like I'm not centered anymore. It's a centering thing for me too. So That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I've been re- I've been reading um, Kate Atkinson's books lately. Um, her novels about um, Jackson Brody, um, and it's, sometimes I'll read books that I don't really enjoy, so I won't go into that. <laughs> but um, I've enjoyed that. I liked. Um, I'm going to forget her name. Uh, the Vanishing Half, I think. Is that mm-hmm. right? Brett. Yes, Brett Bennett. That's her name. Um, and it's but. Whenever I get this question, I'm always sort of like, hmm, because I read a lot and I should keep a log of what I read and I don't. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I really, I really love, I do, I don't, I read, I read some historical fiction, but I don't do it exclusively. I love the work of Ann Patchett and I love the work of Elizabeth Strout. I'll read just about anything they've written when it comes out. So, but I also love Hilary Mantel's historical books. Um, so, you know, it's kind of all over the map. <laughs> sure. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Well, I have a website and it's amybeldingbrown.net. Um, and I'm also on, I'm, gonna, I'm also on Facebook. And again, it's, um, Amy Belding Brown author on Facebook and I'm on Instagram which I'm trying, I think it's the same thing. I think it's at Amy Belding Brown Um, and Twitter. I don't, I'm not very active on Twitter, but once in a while I'll pop up there. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Amy Belding Brown, author of the new novel, Emily's House. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Amy, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Emily's House by Amy Belding Brown, read by Alana Kier Collins, available from PRH Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. Rosaline is casting a glance at the kettle on the cooker's back burner. I know she's hoping I'll be wetting the tea, but I've heard enough of her prattle and need to be alone to think my thoughts. Well, I say in a brisk way. I promised my boarder sausages for supper. Tis sorry I am, I can't be offering you a cup of tea, but it's getting on toward noon and my casings won't be stuffing themselves, and I expect you've got errands to be doing. I give her a kindly nod to gentle the sting. She looks a bit startled, but up she gets and fidgets herself into her coat, and soon enough I'm bundling her out the door. Sure, I'm glad to be seeing the back of her though I know she'll likely be spending what's left of the morning noising it all over Amherst that Miss Margaret Maher's too full of herself to be sharing a cup of tea with a friend. As soon as she's out the door, it strikes me I could have been right about the maid's story. It might not even be true. Wouldn't be the first time Rosaline scattered fables amidst her gossip. From the window, I watch her pass my brother-in-law's house and across the yard to the train depot. Wonder how many other ears she'll be bending before she gets home today. Seems strange I didn't hear her news from my niece first. Nell's always stopping by to tell me what she hears around town. Makes it all the more unlikely there's reason to believe Rosaline. 
The more I think on it, the less sense it makes. Why in heaven's name would Matty D be selling the homestead? She loves the place as much as I do, surely. She's the last of the Dickinson line to own it, and she knows the big yellow house is a treasure, sitting so proud behind its handsome hedge and fence. Taking care of the homestead was my job for thirty years. When I left back in 1899 and walked down Main Street to my sister's place in Kelly Square, I thought I was shed of the Dickinsons for good. Felt like a blessing that sorry day, with Emily and Austin and Vinnie all gone to their graves and the house shut up like a tomb. Now I can't pass the place without wanting to take another peek inside. I'm always glancing at the upstairs west windows where Emily's bedroom was, more than once I've spied a white flutter there and wondered, was it a trick of the light, or maybe her ghost? The queer thing is, I always walk on feeling more comfort than chill, as if the place is consecrated. Matty D inherited everything after Vinnie died, the houses and land and all her grandfather's money. Last time I saw her was at her mother's funeral but I remember her best as a girl running along the path between the homestead and the evergreens, carrying notes back and forth between her mother and Emily. Forty years ago it must have been. She was lively and full of spark as Emily herself. The pair of them headstrong and fierce, full of secrets and schemes. Used to think they were clever as new-minted dollars. But Matty D sometimes uses her cunning and heedless ways, like running off to Europe and marrying a Russian, like renting out the homestead. That unsettled me, to be sure, but I saw the need. A house needs people living inside, or it goes to ruin. Needs curtains at the windows and lamplight glowing in the parlours at dusk. Needs the clinking of silverware on china and the creaking of stairs from time to time as folks go up and down. It's calmed me, knowing it still belongs to a Dickinson. It's plain I need to find out what's true and what's not, before it's too late. And at the minute, smack in the midst of stuffing sausage casings, I resolve to pay a call to the Evergreens this very afternoon. I'll talk to Matty D face to face and root out the truth. And if need be, I'll give her a piece of my mind. I finish up quick with the sausages and give the table and counters a good scrubbing. Scrub my hands too to get the sausage smell off them, and then for good measure, I rub them with a dollop of Heinz honey and almond cream from the bottle Nell gave me last Christmas. In my bedroom, I change into a clean skirt and blouse, and for good luck, pin my new hat to my head at a jaunty angle. It's when I'm regarding myself in the mirror, I'm struck by a familiar jingly feeling, like I'm starting on a new adventure. Seems the homestead still has the same uncanny pull on me it did back in 1869 when I first came under its spell. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.